0: everyone doing good does this bother anyone that these two things right here aren't symmetrical you probably can't necessarily see it over there over there but the center can definitely tell I'm just wondering because I can fix it for you if you want but I could bring it does that fix it a little better (laughs) that would drive people some of you crazy you OCD people right What are these things, by the way? Like a bamboo? Or what kind of tree is it? Andrea? Isn't this your decoration? Birch. Okay. Better? You guys? Okay. Some of you guys can breathe now. It's all good. All right. I want to take the first phrase of our vision. Last week, did you get who wasn't here last week? Just be honest. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shame you. Okay, I see those hands. You need to, you need to really go back and listen to last week if you didn't catch it on the podcast, because that's kind of an overview um, of the vision for Liberty. But then, really, I'm going to take the next few weeks and kind of go phrase by phrase through the vision. And so today, we're going to take the first phrase of our vision belong to the body of Christ and look at what exactly that means. Um, When I look at that, I see two main aspects for this part of the vision, and I'm going to speak to the first aspect today. One, I want to say a couple people have mentioned it. I was actually encouraged and excited when we were going through the conversion book uh, last semester, and now we're going through the, the gospel book this semester. They actually both mention Um, Somewhat in detail, the concept of belonging. And I just want to say that I did not steal that from them, okay? (laughs) Um, I came up with what the Lord laid on my heart back in the beginning of kind of 2018 as I was reading and praying and studying before we read those books. But it was encouraging to me because it really confirmed um, what God's doing here at Liberty. And it encourages me when God's like weaving stuff behind the scenes and, and we don't even see that until he chooses to to show us that. So when we talk about the vision of liberty, um, none of this is applicable to us if we don't have the first part of the vision. Um, It's integral, and really there's nothing more important because you have to belong to the body of Christ. And what do I mean by this is, first and foremost, you have to belong to Jesus. You have to belong to Jesus. Uh, Look at Romans chapter 10. There's a few key ways we belong to Jesus. First, we belong to Jesus through faith. Through faith. So everyone here needs to belong to Jesus. Okay? That is the most important thing. If you don't have that, well, you need to get it. And that happens through faith in him. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 10. In verse 17 it says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What's it saying? People get saved by the preaching of the gospel. And this is the normal means by which God saves people. How many of you are here that got saved from hearing the gospel? Raise your hand. Okay. Pretty much everyone's hand is raised because someone shared it. You might have heard it over the radio. You might have read it in a book you might have had your neighbor, it might have been your mom or dad, it might have been a good friend, but someone shared in some way the good news with you. The amazing thing and the awesome thing about that is that anyone can preach the gospel. Anyone. Look back at verse 13. For everyone who calls, <clears throat> excuse me, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So he's building, Paul's building this sequential um, order of questions here as it's building up. As it is written, verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith, Paul boils it down real simple here. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And what happens? Salvation. Uh, John Bunyan, best known for his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of the Christian life, He believed just what this verse says. Anyone can preach the gospel. There's one problem for John. His country and the church at that time didn't believe that. So he didn't have a title. He didn't have permission. He wasn't licensed. So the law was he could not preach. That did not stop him. And what did they do? They actually put him in prison for preaching the word. This was not some uh, hostile country to Christianity. It was uh, a country that proclaimed supposedly the truth of Jesus. This was none other than England itself. But at the time, uh, it was against the law unless you were licensed to preach. So they put him in there, and they even promised to let him out if he would stop preaching And his answer was, I will not stop preaching. So they kept him in there. And it was actually during that time that he penned this book, which has gone over, like, uh, I think, 250 editions. If you haven't read it, you really need to read it. Um, At one point, I don't know if it still is, but it was, I think, besides the Bible, the second most produced book ever in the English language. Um, Listen, the magistrate can't prohibit that which God commands. So the state can try to muzzle the church, but the church must refuse to be muzzled regardless of the cost. And when the church stops preaching the gospel, which were the church, um, it's no longer the church. So listen, my friends, you don't need a title, you don't need permission, you don't need a license, all right, you don't need some blessing from me or anybody else to preach the gospel. You don't need some special anointing other than the one you received when you were first saved. So, preach away. All right? Preach away. You don't need a pulpit. Preach away. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Let's look at verse 18. Flee From sexual immorality, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So there was a price to pay. It was an insurmountable debt. And you couldn't pay it, but Jesus paid it. He paid the price, and he purchased you. That's what it says right here. You were bought with a price, and you were in the kingdom of darkness. You guys realize that, right? In the kingdom of darkness, I've been there. It's not pretty. It is a dark place, as all of you can attest. And Jesus purchased you from that kingdom and brought you into his kingdom. His kingdom is a kingdom of life, and purity, and joy, and hope. So you were bought. He bought you. Guess what that means? He owns you. Now, from human term, we might not like that idea. But if we're going to be bought and owned, who greater than Jesus himself to own us? Because he Is a gracious and kind and loving master. Look at 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. Let's start in verse 20. This is one of my favorite verses, by the way. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Who's the him? Jesus. Good job. Man, you guys know your Bible a little bit. Good job. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. So I want you to see what's going on here, because there's going to be a couple us's used throughout these next couple verses. It's God who establishes us with you in Christ. So we're established in Christ, and he's anointed us. That's what I just talked about earlier, right? You have an anointing from salvation. That's the anointing. He's anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us. And, it's getting better and better, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Isn't that good? That is some good stuff here. Now check this out. Um, The term seal, your version might use a little bit different word. The term seal and the term guarantee there in verse 21, uh, 22, excuse me, uh, who has also put his seal on us okay, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Those are actually commercial terms. Now, Paul knows his audience, and he's using terms that they will be familiar with in order to explain a point that he wants them to clearly understand. So this first word, seal, gives the idea of um, marking someone with a seal, indicating that that something or someone belongs to someone else, okay? That thing or person belongs to someone else. This gives us, when you look into it, we get three ideas from it, okay? And these are pretty cool. Um, the primary idea is ownership. That kind of makes sense. because We're talking about ownership. But there's two further ideas attached to this word. The second is authentication. Authentication in that a person's seal was the guarantee that the goods in question were exactly what they were described to be, both in nature and quantity. So God has his seal on us, and it authenticates. Who is the one that authenticates it? God himself authenticates what? What he has done in us, in purchasing us. He authenticates us. So he has the ownership, he authenticates it, but there's also one other thing and that's security. Security and that with the seal the owners pledged themselves to protect the thing so identified thus preventing any tampering with the goods while in transit. Isn't that cool? Isn't that good? Security. So ownership, authentication and security. So what is Paul saying when he says that God has sealed Believers, he means that God has branded believers as his property. You are his. And he has attested, second, he's attested to the reality of their status in Christ. And then third, he has guaranteed their protection in transit. What does that mean? Like right now, we're living on this earth. All right? We're not there yet, but we're getting there. But we're not. We are in transit, so to speak. He's guaranteed the protection in transit as his permanent and inviolable possession. Nothing's going to happen in transit. You are sealed by God. You have a guarantee on you that he will carry you to the end. Friends, God does not leave any of his children behind. He does not do that. And if you're God's property, then he owns you. And guess what? He does not sell you back for anything. You are purchased. He doesn't have second thoughts. He doesn't return you if you're damaged goods. Why? Because you are damaged goods. And so am I, okay? And he didn't return us. And he won't let you try and sell yourself back because you're not the owner. You can't sell what's not yours. Look at 1 Peter 2. We're going to see this in a similar way. And most of this in this verse we're about to read is really references from different sections So you are a people for his own possession. He is the owner. You are God's people. Do you understand? Do you understand that you belong to Jesus? Do you understand that the Father has claimed you as his own? Look at Isaiah 43. We get this beautiful passage in Isaiah Sometimes when I'm you know, putting a sermon together, I'll be looking at different verses, and sometimes I just come across passages and I have to read them like three or four times because they're just, it's just, I don't know, so amazing, it blows me away. And this was one of them. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What's he promising to us? What's he promising to us? That he will be with us every step of the way. He will walk with us. I mean, think of these promises here. And all the promises that we just read from 2 Corinthians of God are, yes, in Jesus. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I'm going to protect you every step of the way. Nothing's going to conquer you. Nothing's going to take you down. I will be with you. Those are promises. This is why it's important for us to trust the one who owns us. This is why it's important for us to trust in Jesus. Belonging to Him comes through faith in Him. And what did Jesus say though? In Matthew 24, he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. See, if you get Christ wrong, though, here's the thing. If you get Christ wrong, you get the gospel wrong. The Mormons have Christ wrong, and they have the gospel wrong. The Jehovah Witnesses have Christ wrong, and they have the gospel wrong. And if you don't understand who Jesus is and have a biblical understanding of what he did on the cross, you will have the wrong Jesus, and you'll have the wrong gospel. And guess what? You won't be saved. The doctrine of Christ has been twisted and distorted for thousands of years. Even the early church, when you think about it, a lot of the New Testament letters, he's actually correcting wrong theology. So Paul, Peter, John, others in their epistles, they correct people's Christology. Think of Colossians. They correct people's soteriology. Okay? Christology, the study of Christ. Soteriology, the study of salvation. So you have to have the right Jesus. You have to have the right Jesus. This means the Word is foundational. Every distortion of Jesus begins with the distortion of the Word of God or a laying aside of the Word of God. The Jehovah Witnesses, they have their own translation. It's quite twisted. I mean, here's the beautiful thing, friends. When you know the Scriptures and when you study them, they will only confirm to you over and over again the veracity of what there lies in. Okay? So the Jehovah Witnesses, they come out with their own translation. It's so messed up in some places. It's like, what, was, what were they thinking? Well, they were thinking they wanted to twist the word of God to suit their own desires. And in some of these passages, um, I mean, you can go back to the original Greek. It's not like that, that stuff is hidden and gone and, and faded away and all burned down or something. You can go back and look. Now, maybe you particularly can't if you don't know Greek, but you can go to people who have and see what they have to say. And it's, it just blows my mind sometimes, and I've talked with Jehovah Witnesses about this, um, and they don't know Greek, unfortunately. Um, but if they did, they could see so clearly the errors in their translation. Um, when I first got saved sometimes, I was like, oh man, I'm kind of concerned Like, the more I learn, maybe like, I'll actually stumble across some type of, of truth that will, that will be such a big dent in Christianity, it will shatter my faith. Um, but the opposite has happened. The more I've learned about the Word, the more I've studied it, the more I've studied these other things, it's only shown me how much more the Word is true, how much more what there lies in is accurate and completely true, that it is inerrant. Um, What about the Mormons? I mean, they say the Bible is the Word of God, right? But they got a little caveat there, right? Is whenever you make a valid point to them, and if you're debating with them or or talking with them, they simply say the verse or the passage was mistranslated. Well, that's convenient. Additionally, um, what do Mormons hand out to people? The Book of Mormon. You ever been handed a Bible by a Mormon? I haven't. Um, So what's more important to them? The Book of Mormon. Now, they might verbally say they're on the same plane, but if you get past that, Uh, The Book of Mormon is held in much higher esteem. That's what they are reading in their quiet times. Um, It is not the Word. They know a few passages in the Word because they know that if they want to convince our American Christian culture, that's what they have to be versed in. If you can get Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses um, into passages that they are not familiar with, um, you can graciously clean their clock. Graciously, of course. (laughs) In love. <clears throat> but seriously, um, if you guys know the Word, none of you should be concerned with ever encountering a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon. If you know the Word, that should not be a concern. Um, just keep bringing them back to the Word. That is the key. Okay? Um, and focus on the, the majors. I mean, they're, they're off on so many things. It's like literally books have been written, okay? And I've read those books. But, but focus on the major things. Okay? Keep the major things before them. But he's really... You're not trying to win a debate when you talk with anybody of any religion or non-religion. You're really trying to win a soul. And you need to keep that in mind when you're talking to these people because you can win the debate um, and lose the soul. Okay? So you're really, they got souls on the line when you're talking with people. You want to keep that in mind. Uh, it's not about if you walk away feeling all awesome and great about yourself because you, you shined Um, all about you, um, but because you were able to give them the truth. I try to give them, you want to give them, they need to hear the gospel. You can show them everything that's wrong about their religion, but if you haven't given them the gospel, then you haven't given them an opportunity to believe. So in your conversations with them, you need to work in the gospel. Think of Psalm 119. What does it it say in verse 105? Verse 105. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet, unto my feet. Look at Galatians for a second. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul's saying it is so bad, it is so heinous to distort the gospel. It is so heinous to mess with scripture and make it say something that it doesn't. It is so horrible to give a false gospel that even if an angel distorts the gospel the angel is condemned that word there in the greek let him be accursed it's anathema the worst possible curse the angel himself is condemned look at second timothy chapter 3 i know we're looking at some different verses so i'll give you guys a break here in a second okay It says in Second Timothy 3, I wanted you to see this. Many of you probably know it. Verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? The whole of Scripture is from God himself. You, you guys, this goes back a ways. Um, you guys remember the Jesus Seminar? It goes back like 15, 20 years. Probably like the most liberal group to ever be convened. Um, and they basically went through primarily the Gospels and tried to figure out what did Jesus exactly say, what did he maybe say, what did he probably didn't say, and what didn't he say, okay? Um, with their intent, obviously, to tear apart the Scriptures. It was a big joke. Um, and they even kind of came out with their own little Bible with different colors so you could see what he did say, maybe said, probably said, didn't say, so on and so forth. Um, but the sad thing is um, that, that kind of element or thought really can even pervade, well, it does pervade some churches today. Um, have you ever heard of people called red-letter Christians? Red-letter Christians? Okay, so um, if you're a red letter Christian, you believe only the the words of Christ, you know some Bibles have it in red, only the words of Christ are truly inspired, okay, so Paul, John, Peter, no, um, you know, the Holy Spirit wrote the red letters and the black letters, okay and if you think about it, I mean, so they're kind of trying to push Paul and John and Peter's side, um, but who's people that God used to write down the letters of Jesus? Paul and Peter and John. So they kind of like knock apart their own little argument, right? Because the gospel of John, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Luke are the ones that God chose to write down the very words of Jesus. So if you're going to push apart their words elsewhere, then you really should, to be consistent, would have to push apart their own words that they said Jesus said. Um, It's unfortunate that people want to believe what they want to believe. When you start to pick and choose when it comes to the Bible, um, you've really kind of made yourself God. You're deciding what belongs and what doesn't. That's a scary place to be. Listen, um, some of this that we're talking about with this whole concept of who Jesus is, who God is, That's talking about doctrine. But doctrine simply means teaching. Everything I've said to this point, in a loose sense, is, is doctrine because I'm teaching you. And people say, oh, doctrine divides, doctrine divides. Well, guess what? Doctrine is meant to divide. That's what it's meant to do, and it's a good thing. Truth and error can't go together. So Jesus is God or Jesus isn't God. Those are two doctrinal statements and once you believe one of them, it's a dividing point. So when you have truth and error put before you and you choose one, boom, division. And you have to decide which way you're going to go. Think of Joshua in, in chapter 24 of the book of Joshua. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, can you imagine the Israelites saying, I'm Joshua, that's divisive. Okay, we're asking people to choose between Yahweh and other gods. Why are you being so divisive, Joshua? Now, we w- they wouldn't do that. Well, some of them did, didn't they? <clears throat> but what about the Mormons? What do you do with them? I mean, do we partner with the Mormons in sharing the gospel because we don't want doctrine to divide? Some things. Are worth dividing over. Now we got some peacemakers in the church, and we need peacemakers. Matthew 5 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But don't confuse being a peacemaker with being a peace faker. Because some peacemakers will go to extremes. To ensure there is peace, even while making major compromises. Listen, you can't compromise truth for the sake of peace. If you do, you don't really have true peace. There is truth in the church. There is truth in the church. And this idea of being a peacemaker, it's true here. It needs to be true here. It has to be true in our homes as well. Constantine, one of the early um, emperors, he wanted peace in the church, just like he had in his entire empire. So he convened the council at Nicaea in 325 A.D., and the council was convened to settle the debate over the teaching of a pastor named Arius, who was teaching Jesus was just a man. And not God. And at that council in attendance was a young deacon, Athanasius. He was young and and inexperienced. 300 bishops from all over the Roman Empire came to the council, and the debate came down to one small letter. The Orthodox bishops wanted to say that Christ and the Father are of the same substance. Arius and his followers, known as Arians, offered a compromise. Instead of the same substance, they wanted to say of similar substance. And literally the difference is one letter in the Greek. Homoousian versus Homoousian. Same versus similar. Well, Arius was excommunicated and lost his status as a church teacher. But here's what happened. He gained visibility from the council because his opinion was heard and he was able to defend it. And he gained sympathy as an underdog because everyone loves an underdog. And Arius didn't run away. He grew more and more vocal. And he learned to refine his language, so he sounded as orthodox as possible and he downplayed the differences between him and the orthodox teachers as if the differences were really no big deal. Just a side note for a minute. The Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses playbook comes from Arius. In fact, their theology, at least the Jehovah Witnesses does, make the language as similar as possible. Make it sound like you pretty much agree, and there really is no disagreement. So Arius portrayed his opponents as uncharitable and unloving unwilling to accept Arius for who he was. Sound familiar? Well, the emperor, still not seeing the importance of the issue, grew impatient, and he declared amnesty for all the Arian leaders and used his position as emperor to put pressure on faithful bishops to recognize the amnesty. And one person, out of them all, stood strong and opposed Arius. And it was that young deacon... It was now the Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius. What was the result? At one point, the Emperor forced Athanasius into exile, since Athanasius was unwilling to compromise with Arius. Opposition against Arius grew more and more silent, And 10 years after the Nicene Council, most people sympathized with Arius, and there was a campaign to receive him back in the church. For decades after the Nicene Council, many sadly affirmed the doctrine of Arius. Others who didn't necessarily affirm his teaching were content to make peace with those who did, but not Athanasius. He did not relent. He would not consent to Arius's reinstatement, and he continued to write and preach about the deity of Jesus Christ. Some suggested to Athanasius that the whole world was against him in his uncompromising stance. And his famous response in Latin was "Athanasius contra mundum. Then Athanasius is against the world. And over the course of his life, he was exiled five different times by various emperors that leaned towards Arian beliefs. But today... We stand here and affirm the truthfulness of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And Christianity remains orthodox because, in part, this man was willing to stand when it was unpopular to stand. Athanasius against the world. So he took a stand where it was needed most and when it was needed most. Listen, so many people out there are twisting God's word and saying things about God that simply aren't true. Prosperity teachers, word of faith teachers. Listen, God is so amazing and so awesome and so beautiful. We do not have to say things about God that aren't true to try to make him better. I mean, think about it. We don't have to try to make up intricate details about God that in some way try to beautify him more than he already is or in some way try to make him more amazing than he already is. And we don't have to try to say something else but the truth about Jesus Because the truth about Jesus is beautiful. And the truth about the Father is beautiful. And the truth about the Holy Spirit is beautiful. And the truth is so beautiful, we don't have to add anything to it. Error is what is ugly. It is profane. It is disgusting. And I think sometimes we have to be careful because, and I have been guilty of it myself, we say, well, I wish this particular truth about God's word or about his character um wasn't true, but I still believe it. Because think about it, when we say that, about some doctrine, we're really questioning God's goodness and justice in the matter. And we're putting ourselves in a position of judging God. As C.S. Lewis put it, we put God in the dock, or basically on the witness stand to be questioned. So we should be truth seekers Listen, sometimes people indicate to me that doctrine is boring. Folks, I don't know what you're reading. I mean, apparently you're not reading the well-written books uh, that I read because true doctrine, rightly explained, will blow your mind away, okay? You'll be on your face praising the Lord or crying or both, okay? Now, I got books that will put you right to sleep, okay? (laughs) And they wear me out just looking at them, okay? But I got books on doctrine that will have you bursting for joy in your heart for how good God is. Biblical doctrine isn't boring. all right. And the more I study the Bible, the more I'm convinced how powerful the Word of God is and how powerful and awesome and amazing God is himself. Listen, um, as we are in the Word, we clearly see who we are and whose we are. And we are Christ's. We belong first and foremost to Jesus. Remember what Isaiah prophesied about him. Just listen to this. Don't turn there, but just listen. It's in Isaiah. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now I want to encourage you as we wrap up here. I'm gonna. I'll have the worship team coming up right now. Um. The Lord's put it on my heart that some of us, we're beginning 2019, it's January, oh, it's February, man. Okay, scratch that, no, I'm kidding. The Lord's still put it on my heart. <clears throat> Here we are in February 3rd, that some of us need to repent and be restored to the Lord. You need to return to Jesus because he is your first love. And some of us have forgotten our first love. And it's an opportunity. You don't need to make a resolution. You need a restoration and repentance. But it's an opportunity to get right with the Lord. So the worship team is going to play um, a song or two. If you want prayer, I'm I'm going to be over here and you can come over here and I can pray with you. But if you don't want prayer, but you just want to come forward and get right with the Lord, then it can just be you and Him. And you can do that during our time of worship. But I encourage you to do it. Do it as an act of you getting right with the Lord if you need to do that. Don't, don't let your pride hold you back from coming forward. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we are yours That we belong to you. That you bought us. You paid for us. You sent your son to pay the ultimate price. And you are so good. You are such a good father. Every human father pales in comparison to you. You are a good father to redeem us, to restore us, to be reconciled with us. So I pray, Lord, You'd give us tender hearts now. And whoever here might need to come forward, Lord, as a sign of their repentance, Lord, wanting to get right with you. Maybe it's something big. Maybe it's something small. You know our hearts, God. That they would do so. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to make things up about you to make you any more beautiful than you are because you are are the best. You are the best. And your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, for the life we have in your son, Jesus. Cleanse us now, Lord.